Hey everybody, welcome to the fourth episode of School Psyched Podcast. Um, tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about manifestation determinations, which I know has been a pretty hot topic. When we posted it on Facebook, we got a lot of comments, a lot of people that are interested. Um, so I'm excited for that. We're also, if we're going to have time, we're going to transition to a discussion about behavioral interventions at the secondary level. Uh, my name is Rachel. Uh, I'm currently working in Texas right now, and I'm going to turn it over for intros to uh, Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psychologist and I work in New York State and I work exclusively in special education with students with developmental disabilities. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca and I work in Connecticut. I work at a private school for pre-k through 12th graders and I, and I just love it. It's so it's different than public school but I really love it. Rachel? Um, okay, so um, as far as, oh, Rebecca, do you want to tell us a little bit about how people can participate tonight? Because we really want that discussion. It'll make it a lot more interesting. Absolutely. So you'll notice uh, that I get a little distracted at times because I'm going to be checking the School Psyched podcast Facebook page as well as the um, School Psyched Your School Psychologist page. So you can comment on either of those pages or you can comment on Twitter using the hashtag PsychedPodcast. If you go to the Facebook page, the School Psyched Podcast page, you'll see the hashtag that you can copy and paste and, you, and you'll see the latest post on the Hangout where you can comment and I'll be checking. So please share your experiences, your thoughts and your ideas because we'll be really looking forward to uh, hearing about them and I'll, I'll, I'll post them to our conversation. Um, so I think we were going to start off by talking a little bit, um, I myself have a lot of kind of practical thrown into it experience with manifestations and I know um, that Rebecca has been doing and, and both Anna and Rebecca have been doing a lot of research into the legalities with manifestations so I think we were going to start by talking about kind of that, that best practice model concerning manifestations. Yeah, so I, I have very limited experience um, with manifestation determination meetings. Um, when I was an intern in the public school, I knew of them, but I was never invited to one. Um, so uh, what I did was I went to my um, best practices. This is the, the last version. I haven't bought the, the new version. But best practices in making manifestation determination. It was a great article by Robert Kubrick, Jr., and um, basically overviews the entire process and all of the determine all of the uh, <laughs> all of the basic considerations of these types of meetings. So what happens is the when there is a behavior that um, is a problematic behavior, they um, they determine whether that student will be um, will be given the same consequences as a student with who is not in special education by asking basically two questions. Um, the first is, is the behavior a direct result of the student's disability? Um, and the second question is, is the student's IEP being followed well, correctly. I'm looking for the exact wording because I'm not saying it as well, but 
as they did. <laughs> but those are the two basic considerations of how they determine whether the student will receive the same consequences for unwanted behavior as the other students in the school. So it's similar to some people have compared it to um, the process in the courts of whether people with um, emotional disabilities or mental disabilities or mental illness are responsible for their behavior. Um, let me see. So, Rachel, is that how, how you've experienced manifest determinations too? Are those the two questions in your experience that the, the school and the team is trying to answer? Yeah, generally we're reviewing um, a variety of sources of information, and I think we'll get into that in a, a little bit, and considering all the relevant information, and then you, ask, you know, answer those as a team, those two questions about um, is, the, is the, the incident substantially or directly uh, related to the disability, uh, or is it uh, related to the LEA's failure to implement the IEP. So those are your two. So as a team, um, you're not deciding what the what the punishment is. You're not deciding, you know, what those consequences are. You're just deciding, answering those two questions usually. Right. Um, and so in those considerations, part of the team, the school team's responsibility is to ask whether the IEP what the IEP goals were appropriate in the first place and whether the goals supported behaviors that may likely be a result of any disability. So that's one question to, to look back in a student's history, determine whether the IEP um, was appropriate in the first place and whether it was being followed. And um, as we know, best practices includes preventative measures as well and skills um, teaching so if, if you know if we think of behavior as communication or communicating a need we should in creating IEP goals address the behaviors that may likely occur due to a student's disability so that's one consideration of the team um, also very uh, what we found interesting was that they say that the, the mandates of manifestation determination also apply to any student about whom the school has knowledge. And knowledge is in quotes. So um, the school has knowledge might have a disability un under IDEA 2004 eligibility criteria. The school is said to have knowledge of a suspected disability if A, the student's parents express concerns in writing to a supervisory or administrative personnel of the school or a teacher or the, or the student um, that is in need of special education or services. B, the student's parents have requested an evaluation, so that's even if the evaluation isn't complete, or C, when the student's teacher or other school personnel have expressed specific concerns about a pat pattern of, behavioral, of behavior demonstrated by the student. So that says that the school is responsible for determining whether behavior is a manifestation of a disability, even when the disability has not been diagnosed or is only suspected. So I think that's really interesting also. Um, I, I want to jump in for a second. Can I? Yeah. Okay. Um, in, in researching, and sorry, this is my cat, Ariel. She's really interested in what's going on today. Um, in researching 
um, for this, I found a great website that Rachel has put on our Google Plus Drive, the, the Share Drive, which you guys can check out. There's a whole manifestation folder, and IDEA, like that's a government link um, that has all these questions and answers. And and Rebecca, a lot of that stuff you were talking about. There's lots of Q and A, like you know, how does the how does the parent need to request this avail, and all these these kind of little logistical questions. And I thought that was so awesome. So if anyone's like looking into manifestation territory, check out that website because that's from like the law, the source, you know, and that was really cool. And there's another website that's also on our Google Drive, which is from a lawyer. Um, a lawyer posts all these tips kind of for other lawyers or for parents who are looking into challenging or, you know, manifestation hearings and wanting it to be found a manifestation, obviously, so the punishment is not as severe. Um, and they have all these tips of what to do, and they refer to us, the school psychologist, as, like, the expert on behavior and the person who they're going to turn to in these meetings, and that, like, if we, the school psychs, say it's a manifestation. That's good because we're like, other people are probably going to follow us. So, like, get the school psych on your side and stuff is what they advised. I wish I had that way in my school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to throw that out there. Like, you know, it's really interesting what, what we could experience in these meetings. Absolutely. And best practice, the best practices article also talks about how we are sort of the experts in in mediating the relationships between administration and students and parents and kind of advocating for the student in a way that considers the, the positions of all these different people because in the meeting um, you know different parties have different sort of agendas in some, in some cases and so we are um, sort of leaders in the charge of protecting the interests, the best interests of the student and um, often that means no matter what the decision is in the meeting that we try to make sure that the um, IEP goals are being met. So if, the student, if it is decided the student will have an alternative placement, um, we need to then try to make sure, we, we need to protect their right to a free and appropriate public education and I think that's a really important role and it seems like a difficult challenge because of all the different sides of the story um, during these meetings. Yeah, I, I, I wonder, um, on the NASP website is a great article if you search on NASP um, Manifestation Determination, and it's called The Minimalist Approach to Manifestation Determination, uh, Possible Compromise of Due, right, of Due Process Rights. And what she talks about, Linda Malloy, a nationally certified school psychologist, she talks uh, in general about how... Um, you know, she, she gives three case examples and different decisions in each uh, and different behaviors, problematic behaviors and different um, learning um, differences and disabilities, but she basically says that really it's up to us to um, continue to provide, to, to look at the IEP and adjust the goals and make sure that we're addressing the needs of the kid. And she, she talked, of the students, sorry, <laughs> she talks about, I used to always get mad at my husband when he said kid because, you know, it is a baby goat. <laughs> but, um, but so we're, that's a big responsibility because it's really difficult, I think. It would be really difficult to try to continue to meet IEP goals if the student's suspended and at home, in a home, yet, you know, that's our charge. So I wonder if anyone has any experience with that, um, and I'm looking now on the other pages. Do you guys have any experience with a student that is placed in another setting, and, um, and then you're still trying to manage the 
behavior goals and, and meet that student's needs? Um, well, I where I work, um, students are placed with us, you know, yeah. because of behaviors that occur in a public school setting that are not, um, you know, they can't meet the needs in the public school, so they refer them to us. And we also have a home tutoring center where I work, or where, you know, it's like a tutoring center, you know, at the site where students who are on long-term suspensions are, are bused there, and they come and they receive their counseling service there, and they receive supports there. So I sort of get to see the other end of it sometimes at the aftermath. You know, I don't attend the manifestation hearings at, at where they came from before, but I see them down the line where they ended up, and it's really interesting. That is interesting, and that does seem like a great alternative that I have never heard of in, in my short experience in public schools. I don't know that there was another setting like that. I mean, besides a very limited um, uh, placement in sort of, um, you know, in a very, very limited placement. But I think that what happened was if the student was determined um, not to be able to stay in the current setting, then we look at, like, private schools. That's all I, that I that I've heard of. I, so I think that's interesting and I think that sounds like a really great alternative. Do, do, so the students that come to you, they generally stay with you? Um, often they'll they'll stay in different, like we have different placements. We have like a therapeutic placement, we have a placement that's an alternative placement for students who might be um, having legal troubles or you know various other issues where they're having a hard time um, maintaining their behavior in a public school. Um, so there's some different kind of alternative settings depending on the kids' needs. You know, certain kids, the more ED might go one place, and then the kids with more oppositional or um, behavioral issues might go in another another setting. So there's a variety of settings. Rachel, um, what is your experience? Um, since moving to Texas, um, they do things a little bit differently than some of the other states that I've worked in. They do have um, they have what's called DAEP, which is a disciplinary alternative education placement. Um, so it's a discipline campus and they kind of, um, so there's a couple different things that a child can do to get sent to um, this change in placement, which before they're sent, we have to have the manifestation. So, um, you know, a good portion of my manifestations are because they've hit the 10 days and you're allowed those 10 cumulative days of absences in a school year. Um, and then a good portion of kids too are kids that have done an offense that warrants placement over at the DAEP, um, and that change of placement triggers the manifestation. So um, going over to DAEP, they do have, um, like for example, I think it's a 30-day stay if um, you're caught with drugs or fighting, that type of thing. I believe the weapons also will uh, result in that. And so what happens is there's a hearing first before the manifestation meeting to determine is, uh, is the student guilty of whatever happened um, and, and the circumstances surrounding that. And then um, if so, you move in to manifestation meeting. Um, so I attend the manifestation portion. Um, and yeah, the students, I mean, if they're sent over to an alternate placement, generally, yeah, the services aren't going to be quite the same oftentimes as what's offered at the home campus, which can be a problem. Um, at the high school level, they might be enrolled in, you know, a welding class or some sort of an elective class, and they maybe don't have that offered at the DAEP. So we have to talk about how we're going to meet that student's needs. If they are going over there, how we're going to meet their needs um, in the meantime as far as sending work over. Um, they might not be staffed really to um, supply the SPED services that the student has in their IEP, so that needs to be a discussion. Um, 
And I'm not sure that there's a correct answer to that. If, if you know that there's one SPED teacher over there and they probably can't provide all the resource classes that the student has an IEP for, um, but you know that they're being sent there, kind of, <laughs> it kind of puts the school psych, I think, in a tough position. So, um, uh, Anna, your model sounds really nice, and I think that that's pretty good. Um, but I've seen um, some problems with what what tends to happen sometimes in other districts with that disciplinary change in placement if that has to happen. So. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the manifestation meetings. Yes. Uh, there's one interesting thing I wanted to add, too, that from this uh, best practice article, that during the appeals process, and I don't know if anyone out there has had experience with that, but if the, a decision is made and somebody wants to appeal that decision, um, during the appeal period, stay put provisions are put in effect and the school may not unilaterally, unilaterally remove the student from his or her placement. A notable exception to this is that the school personnel may assign a student to an interim alternative educational setting for no more than 45 school days without regard to whether the behavior is determined to be a manifestation of the student's disability or not. In, in cases where the student carries or possesses a weapon to school, um, to or at school, on school premises, or to a school function, um, or knowingly possesses or uses illegal drugs or sells or solicits the sale of a controlled substance while at school, on school premises, or at a school function, um, has inflicted seriously serious bodily injury upon another person while at school, school premises, school function. Those are the three. So those are special cases in which the school seems to have a lot more leeway for, for what they can do in terms of jump in. I will say that the serious bodily injury, I've been told by um, a lawyer, a SPED lawyer, that that is, that's not a punch to the face. That's like a life-threatening injury where, you know, another student or somebody is, you know, on the cusp of death type of thing, like a, a serious stabbing. That's not, I've had schools say that, oh, well, that's a serious bodily injury because he got punched. No, that's not a serious bodily injury. So, something else to consider. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then one interesting, another interesting um, idea in the article was that, um, I'm not going to be able to pronounce their names, let's see, Kat C. Aeneas and Mag in 2001 <laughs> uh, uh, argued that disability categories themselves are socially constructed rather than medically validated. Because disability categories are subject to social and political pressures, it is difficult to develop scientifically validated assessment and treatment approaches for students identified with these disabilities. So they're saying that the manifestation determination is a process that is conceptually flawed, that is methodologically, methodologically, I can't say that word, I'm sorry, <laughs> right now, is conceptually flawed, that the whole process is so, um, uh, almost, they don't say it, but it seems like that they're saying that it's arbitrary because there's no evidence that these disability categories that we use are, uh, that we can say that these disabilities will predict these behaviors. So. I think that's really an interesting and important point because it does seem that you can go, I mean, 
it seems to me that you might be able to go into these meetings and depending on who has the best argument, who can most uh, sway sort of the team, they win. And I think that's really not, doesn't seem like a great system to me. I think there hopefully in the future will be better ways of ensuring a free and appropriate public education. I, I agree and I'll say too that oftentimes it depends on the school climate and the, and the team that you're working with. I've seen teams that they will uh, they almost always say that there's a link. I've seen teams that they almost always <laughs> will say there is no link. Um, it it kind of depends on administration. It depends, I think, in part um, how much respect and how um, how long the school psychologist has been there, I think, impacts how much of a say um, we would have in a meeting. But it is kind of like trying to win over a jury sometimes in, in some cases. And I've, I've definitely had... Um, teams disagree with me where, or where I, I feel very strongly that there is a link and you know we kind of go around the table and everyone says nope it's, it's totally unrelated he made a choice um, it was his decision when I'm sitting there saying you know this is emotional disturbance so we're gonna see these types of behaviors with emotional disturbance and so it's not surprising to me that this kid had a meltdown and punched this other kid and da 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 um, and oh no, and, you know the teachers might pipe in. Oh, he made a choice. He he knows what's going on, and, and it's kind of like in my mind. Well, then why is he classified as having an emotional disturbance? Why do we have an eligibility team that said that he exhibits these behaviors related to emotional disturbance? Yet, um, so I, I have had disagreements with the team, and you kind of I've tried to you know state my point and document my opinion in the minutes. I feel like if it ever were to go to, you know, due process or something, um, the district needs to know where I'm going to stand if I do get called up to the stand and, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise. Um, so I want my opinion stated in the minutes and documented, but at the end of the day it's a team decision and, you know, we move on and we respect that team decision. So it, it can be tough. I'm not going to lie, I've been to one manifestation determination meeting, it was an internship, um, with the population I work with, students with developmental disabilities that I'm at right now, their behaviors are so linked to their disabilities, you know, if a student clocks a teacher, you know, we're writing an FBA and we're working on the BIP and we're intervening in that way or we're looking into a, having a CSE meeting and, and discussing, you know, placement change or whatever, but, so I've only been to the one manifestation meeting and it was unanimous, like everyone said, yep, you know, this kid fought, he's got you know, OHI, ADHD, he was, he was impulsive, and this was the manifestation of his disability, and everyone was everyone around the table, it was unanimous. So as an intern, I was like a deer in headlights. I didn't really, I didn't really, I probably should have done some research, like, before the meeting, and I, I'm so glad that they had other people go before me, so I didn't have to be the first person. Like, I did his evaluation, but I didn't want to be the first person to, like, talk and make that decision. So I'm really glad that other people went before me, and, like, the director of special education who was running the meeting, like, went first, which was awesome. But, like, I kind of want to hear about meetings that aren't unanimous, like, what happens? Like, is it like a majority rule situation, or what's your experience with that, Rachel? Um, I've been told, at least, um, I think it probably depends state by state on who's kind of a voting member of your IEP team. And it's usually, you know, the parent, the LEA, um, general ed teacher, and special ed teacher. I don't think, and maybe it depends state by state, because I want to say maybe Nevada, um, I was a voting member. But where I'm at right now, um, I technically, from my understanding, um, I mean, I, I can sign agree or disagree, but it's not, um, 
it's not super relevant if I'm overruled. Yeah. Um, if you have like a parent and LEA disagreeing, that's where you have, um, usually there's procedures with the meeting either gets tabled, you know, you follow your procedural safeguards, um, there might be a mediation process, that type of thing. Um, yeah. But I think it depends state by state. Uh, yeah, and also I think according to the best practices article, um, there's no um, there's no the the laws about manifestation determination provide no direction as to whether such determinations must be unanimous or they could be made by majority. There's no language that discusses which individuals have status on the team or which team members have standing in the vote. So. Basically, what they say is that it depends on each individual administration and their policies. And another thing that I thought was really helpful, when I went online, many states have um, these summary worksheets and um, forms for manifestation meetings. And the forms kind of outline the process. So at first, um, review the student's placement and the IEP, who's, who are the team members present. So it kind of walks you through and lets you um, fill in all the parts of the puzzle as you're discussing it. I think it's a nice like visual guide to making a decision. Um, so that but it seems helpful, but I think it, it seems to be up, up to the administration whose voice becomes the determining factor. And I will say that I believe the verbiage in North Carolina was it's the consensus of the team, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I vote this way, I vote this way. It's a general consensus, mm -hmm. which is a little bit vague to me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think it just depends. You're right. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see. There's a couple other points I wanted to mention. Oh, um, some things that I've learned as I've gone through about manifestations. Um, anytime there's a denial or of, of services, of SPED services, um, that could trigger a manifestation as far as it counts towards your 10 cumulative days. So if you've got SPED students that are sitting in in-school suspension, even though they're on campus, they're not receiving their services necessarily, that could still count and that's still, um, if you're 10 days in school suspension, that's still going to trigger a manifestation meeting. Um, I have seen some campuses that do what they call a smart ISS, where a SPED teacher goes down and provides those services to the student. That to me would be a little bit iffy um, as far as are they getting, are they getting their free appropriate you know, public education if they're sitting in an in-school suspension room and they got a, a SPED teacher kind of checking in on them. I don't know, but some... Um, some schools do do that smart in-school suspension to uh, provide those services. Another thing that I thought was interesting is if a student has a service on their IEP, such as specialized transportation, if, say, the student were suspended from the bus, that could count um, towards your 10 days and trigger a manifestation determination um, if they're being denied their specialized transportation. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, that is we have a participant um, now who says, at my district, we have a list of questions we review, and one part of that is my responsibility, reviewing relevant information from the most recent evaluation. So I review any information on the student's behavior and diagnosis. 
This makes it important for us as school sites to document any behavior patterns. That's so that's so true and important. And information from behavior scales in our evaluation reports. Sometimes we are the only staff member in the manifestation determination to have knowledge on how the student's diagnosis may manifest. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And I think the, pa the pattern of behavior and what, what has been done to support the student towards growth and um, sort of the um, preventative measures are so important. And I would imagine that, that um, for school sites walking into that meeting, that is a big part of the role. It's interesting too that um, you know some some people see us as and I see us as an important team member to be participating in that decision. But I do know that you know in some places we're not we're not required team members. Um, we don't have to be there. And there's some districts that regularly have um, manifestations without the school psychologist. They they might in some cases have the social worker or somebody else um, in at the meeting who can speak to some of that. Um, but I don't think across the board we're, we're required by law. So. Um, which is surprising. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also, okay, um, I've been in a, a case where, you know, sometimes I do, and in an ideal world, um, before the suspension is given, you want to have that manifestation. So if you know, you know, your kids at 10 days, every, every incident that is going to get a suspension after that, you have to have a meeting. I have some kids that they're, you know, at 20 days now and we're having a meeting every single time, um, you know, kind of weekly meetings manifestation because that's what we have to do. Um, I forgot my point. I was going to say something. <laughs> um, oh, geez. You said it's best to have it before the kids get suspended? Oh, yes. <laughs> Ideally, you would have it before, thank you, Anna, before uh -huh. um, the suspension is is given by administration. But I have had some cases where, you know, by the time we get around to scheduling the meeting for whatever reason, the kids already served their five-day suspension. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of sitting in this meeting saying, no, we're making the decision if it's linked or not. But if we say that it is linked, they've already served their five days. What happens then? And I've been told in that case that the district would owe compensatory services to make up those special education services that were missed. But yeah, in an ideal world, um, it would happen before that, that disciplinary action is given, I think. <laughs> yeah, so that almost suggests to me that if we are um, monitoring a student's progress well um, and understanding the, the functions of their behaviors beforehand, in the perfect world, we won't get to these situations where, where it becomes, right? I mean, <laughs> doesn't it, I mean, I don't know because I don't have this experience and, and have these situations, but if it's, if it's a student that is like my student and I go into a meeting where he's done something um, that's that they're considering suspension as the consequence. Doesn't that mean that I kind of missed something? I, you know, I missed a, a skill that I should have been practicing with him, or I, I, I missed a piece of the behavior plan that, um, or, or I'm, you know, uh, maybe my skills are all around a, you know, a, dis a reading disability, and I didn't notice that this kid's self-esteem is plummeting, and that's going to affect behavior. I, I don't know. I think I might, but maybe because I'm new too. I think I might feel really responsible. Does anybody else feel that way? But I, I think there's some instances too where you know it's totally out of your control. Like if I get a an email that 
you know, we have to have a manifestation because a learning disabled child got caught with marijuana and sent to the disciplinary campus. Um, I'm kind of like, I, <laughs> that's probably going to be a pretty cut and dry meeting. Um, and it's, it's a lot trickier, yeah, when, when you've got ED, I think. I have found that ED isn't always linked. I've had gang situations where I felt that the student was complying with kind of the social norms of the gang and so was experience, expressing some understanding of social norms and what's appropriate and what's not, and he's choosing those inappropriate norms over, um, you know, what he should be doing. Um, so. I'm not sure that ED is always linked, but I think that more often than not, you can find a link between ED. But when you're you're talking about an LD kid, speech um, mm -hmm. impairment kid, and it's kind of um, cut and dry, that's it's a little bit easier. Um, I've been asked too, do you always have to have an FBA following a manifestation um, if there isn't one already in place? And yeah, if it's not linked, from my understanding, you don't need to. I don't need to go out and write an FBA for the student who's LD. Um, for their marijuana use. Um, I don't think there would be a huge point in that, um, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think we have to look into what they need if the needs are being met and like edit the, the individualized plan if necessary, and that sometimes that might be an FBA, sometimes it might not be. Yeah, That's true. true. I, yeah, I think first I guess we would try, look at them sort of on a three-tiered level and see is this the first time, you know, the first behavioral incident or, or you know, do we need to have some more individualized intervention planned? And then, I, I mean, I'm assuming that, um, that an FBA is a good way to make sure that we're supporting the students so that it doesn't happen again, you know, so that we can, so that we can meet that child's needs. Yeah. Are you guys good with transitioning into talking more about behavior? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I behavior plans, right? We we love them, we hate them. Love hate relationship. Are you with me? <laughs> yeah, I kind of um, love. Them. <laughs> okay, that's good. That, that's good. It's great that pe people need to love them. Someone has to. But um, so there's the FBA. I think my teachers hate them. <laughs> Say that again. I think my teachers hate them. Right. Right. And. <laughs> Our second request, a very popular request, was behavior interventions at the secondary level, and it is so hard to implement a behavior intervention, you know, VIP official or not, when you're working in a middle or high school, when the kid goes to like six different teachers, and um, you have a lot of different personalities, and you have a lot of different settings, and it's just very challenging to get everyone on the same page, and even, not even just teacher buy-in, but student buy-in. Um, so. I, on our on our resources page under the FBA VIP, I put up a we put up a competing behavior pathway little chart that I think is kind of helpful because you always have to even if you're not doing an FBA, it's helpful to look at the function of the behavior. Like why is this kid acting this way? You know, maybe it's just with one teacher because he hates her, which I've seen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's, it, I, I if you guys want to check that out, it's helpful I think to frame your meetings if you have time to sit down with teachers and discuss student behaviors and and work on what does the kid need that he's not getting you know what's what's going wrong here what are your guys thoughts on supporting students through interventions at the high school level um, 
I can talk a little bit. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot more difficult at the high school level. I think that um, after working in elementary schools too for um, so long, I don't want to stereotype anyone, but I think that elementary school teachers are a lot more flexible with changing the structure to their day and making accommodations and whatnot, whereas high school teachers, middle school teachers, like they're teaching a set kind of curriculum, they're getting them ready for the state exam, this is what they need to cover, and so, you know, working around this child's behavior sometimes is, you know, they just want, they want to teach their course. <laughs> so they can be a little bit more difficult to work with if you're coming from um, being used to kind of the flexibility of elementary school teachers. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I mean, at the high school level, I do, and our last uh, podcast episode, we had um, Dr. Rosenthal on about his uh, electronic uh, daily uh, report card, and I've tended to use uh, daily behavior report cards as an intervention at the high school level that I've seen some success with, like a check-in, check-out system, um, sometimes putting that in a Google Doc so teachers can go in there and, and plug in information and, and leave comments type of thing. Um, so that's, I've seen some success with that. Uh, I've experienced some exposure to the PASS program here in my schools um, at Texas, which is a positive approach to student success, and it's based on um, a program, um, and you can buy, it's kind of a book, and it comes with some Excel spreadsheets and whatnot, and it involves tracking behaviors, and involves first uh, kind of a social skills training that the student goes through. Um, to learn what's appropriate, what's not, and, and how the system works. And the system has kind of a red, yellow, and green coding um, system, color-coded system. So the teacher will put on, you know, if the students have been doing fine, they're putting the green chip up on the on the, um, the window of their door. So the past consultant or paraprofessional or teacher is walking around and checking on all those students throughout the day. And oh, green, okay, Johnny's doing good in that class. Oh, yellow, maybe I better poke in, you know, see what Johnny's up to. And red, okay, Johnny needs to come out of the class, needs to get some explicit instruction, needs to calm down, and then we're gonna bring him back into the course. Um, and so uh, that seems like a pretty good program. Um, I'm still learning about that. Uh, to speak too much to it, uh, but I know that in transitioning students out of that, then there's kind of a mentorship phase where um, students who have had success with the program are mentoring students who are just coming into the program. And so I, I thought that that looked um, like it had some good aspects of it, and it didn't. It seemed like you just bought the book, from my understanding, and then it also had um, came with the Excel spreadsheets and things like that. So it didn't seem like it was a huge. Um, expense, but um, again, I'm not super familiar with it, so I've seen that. Um, but yeah, high schools are are, are different, <laughs> difficult, and, and different in a lot of respects. Yeah, so in my limited experience, uh, what I find that I do for high school students is um, work with them first on a, uh, agreeing upon goals, and sometimes they are like, especially. You know, kind of related to the um, manifestation meeting topic, when their behavior goals, I think that the preventative measures like uh, a little bit of psychoeducation and agreeing upon some goals and like small little behavior changes that we can agree together um, on together seem really effective. And then once I can do that, sort of 
alone with the student one-on-one, -on -one, and then I can bring it to the teacher and say, can you um, provide a couple of reminders? Here's the, you know, a visual, and a visual checklist for a high school kid, you know, student, sorry, is not um, like, you know, for a younger student, it's more of, you know, it, I almost see it more of as executive functioning um, kind of reminder system. So it may be when to know when I need to take a break to kind of get in front of those um, times when a student it may behave um, because of a need in the way that he's used to that wasn't so effective. So um, going through and creating sort of a menu of replacement behaviors with the student and then having the teacher in on the team to support um, to support him or her with reminders and monitor progress monitoring and reinforcing what went well. Um, that's I that's what I do at the high school level. Okay. Well okay, cool. <laughs> I want to touch on one other thing. Um, we like when you think of behavior, right? Like in my mind you think of crisis. Like there's little behaviors that are like little blips and then there's behaviors that escalate and become huge outbursts and become a crisis. And we have a uh, crisis intervention training where I work and I'm sure where lots of people work um, they have different trainings and different systems and stuff so I just want to share um, this is on our page as well on the, the drive somewhere like these are different behavior management techniques right that's a PowerPoint slide from the training so managing the environment is one if you can change the environment a little bit to support the student that's pretty easy prompting and the way the prompting occurs um, caring gesture, so that relationship with the student and helping to support them. Hurdle help, getting them started. Redirection, proximity, which could be getting closer or getting further away. And planned ignoring and positive attention. So those are like some of the preventative strategies for supporting students that we learned in my, my crisis intervention training that I just want to share with you guys. And the PowerPoint slides are up there under the crisis folder. Awesome. And a lot of things, too, that I've learned from talking with students and um, finding out, you know, why, why are you having a hard time with this? What, what's going on? A lot of times it comes down to the student's perception of the relationship with the teacher. I mean, I'll have a student who does well with one or two teachers and not so much with the others, and it's like, why? Or, oh, and he might say something about, well, this teacher doesn't like me, or this teacher doesn't respect me, or this teacher tells me what to do too much. It's kind of their, their perception of they don't get respect, they're not treated like an adult, so I'm shutting down this teacher and I'm not going to interact with them. And the, and the teachers that they do have good relationships with, they perform well and they do their work, and it's kind of like, what's going on? Why is this kid so different in your class but not in mine? And it comes down to that relationship, I think, first and foremost, before you're going to get those academics out of out of the student. Um, I, I talk to teachers too about maybe some teachers that are reluctant to implement a BIP or some new strategy and you can say well how how much time of your class is wasted because Johnny's having um, these explosive behaviors. How much instruction are you missing? Oh I'm probably missing half the half the class because of him. Okay, well, so this intervention is going to take, you know, five minutes a day to implement. So why don't we give this intervention a try because, hey, if it works, maybe you can save, you know, the, the rest of that time in your class. So sometimes they need to kind of look at it that way that you can put some work into it. Right now, you know, things are, things are pretty bad and you have to try something. So. Okay, well, we're, we're running short on time. Any final thoughts or comments? 
haven't gotten any anymore yeah comments I was hoping guys for some more participation because people were so excited about the manifestation topic um, and I really wanted other people's opinions because like we say the three of us were not the experts in any of this and uh, we would like to one night get like a stud lawyer on to talk to us who would be an expert in the field but you know th this episode is is kind of a discussion and a collaborative effort and so I'm hoping that somebody will chime in and say oh I have this one manifestation that this happened or something. I know confidentiality, you know, careful what you're saying, but, um, so like, yeah, so, yeah. but I encourage, um, all, anyone to continue to comment on the School Psych Podcast page. We can continue the conversation. Um, I think all of your experiences are so valuable to all of us, and so together, collectively, we can learn so much from each other. Um, I just a small plug for a book that I really like. It's called The Behavior Code Companion. The Behavior Code is the original book, but this companion looks at behavior plans. It's K through six, but for, especially for anxiety and oppositional defiant disorder, um, students with um, those disabilities. And it's a really great model. It walks through a lot of um, ideas and methods for behavior planning around those two um, diagnoses. Oh, we do have a comment. Yay! Thank you, guys. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, guys, too. <laughs> um, she, oh, she wasn't able to chime in. She tried, but <laughs> but she but she got. But we see you now. Thank you, Jennifer, and anybody else that wants to continue the conversation or share thoughts or ideas, please do use the hashtag Psych Podcast or comment on our podcast page. Um, because we'd love to hear from you and continue to support each other with ideas and, or resources or just just uh, general support. <laughs> um, before Anna is going to close us out, I just wanted to say something that you, when you mentioned ODD, um, Rebecca, that reminded me too, um, how it's important for, like in manifestations, for the team to consider all those outside diagnoses, even if it's not something that the school um, recognizes. Like you could have an LD kid that the parent says, oh, but this outside psychologist says they're autistic or this outside psychologist says they're bipolar or mood disorder, that all that information for sure needs to be talked about in the meeting and considered at least. Even if um, maybe the team doesn't see it at school, um, it's something that needs to be a consideration and addressed, I would say, in that paperwork. So that just popped in my head. <laughs> That's a good point. The educational classification, like at least in New York, you have to pick one. You know, and that's just one piece of the puzzle. That's just the primary force that's getting in the way of this kid. That's not the only force. Exactly. So that's a very, it's a very good point, Rachel. Okay, so um, we're going to wrap it up then. Our next podcast is in two weeks from tonight, Sunday, March 29th, um, 7, 8, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. <laughs> we have two different um, time zones in our group. Um, and we're going to be talking about anxiety, and we're going to have a clinical psychologist joining us, Eric. So we're very excited to um, to discuss, you know, some of the causes, the triggers, and, and how to support kids with anxiety. So see you guys in two weeks. Bye. Bye.